Welcome back to another episode of Wicked Hot Guys. This is John. And Kevin. And we are at it with yet again. Uh, actually, this is going to be our second to last episode of the year. Yeah. For Wicked Hot Movie Mayhem Season 1. We're going to end it on a strong 40 episodes for the year, and then we'll go into 2019 killing it like we have been. Yes, agreed. Um, but unfortunately, we did not kill it with the social networking and the Instagram post for this week. But Kevin, if we did post something, what would it be? Uh, it would probably be a home video of like Aladdin 3 lost <laughs> in India or something, uh, which was a direct to, I don't know, it could have been direct to VHS movie. I think you're thinking of Aladdin, Prince of Thieves, I think, or King of Thieves. Well, that's the second one. I'm talking about maybe a made up third one. Yeah, I don't think there was a third one. But. <laughs> so this week's topic, we were talking about movies that went were supposed to go straight to VHS, but ended up being released in theaters. And movies that were straight to VHS or streaming or what have you, but that garnered a lot of interest because of it being uh, kind of like a cult or straight to VHS movie that has gotten a lot of praise despite not being in theaters. Yeah, I know for the ones that I picked, they did have a release, but it wasn't like... I'll get into it, but it wasn't right. it wasn't anything to write home about. Right. And as always, we will be going over two movies for each category, starting off with our films that almost went to VHS. Wicked smart, wicked cool, wicked fucking stupid, whatever the fuck is up, wicked. My boy's wicked smart. Because the boy is hotter than hot. He's hot. Hot! Hot! Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? My first one, I fully expected this and am not surprised in the least at the fact that this was heading to a straight-to-video release. And that is The Expendables. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) The whole reason... It was originally attended uh, for direct-to-video release is because, I mean, at this point, Stallone's current career trajectory, his last movie before Expendables was in 2008, which was Rambo. Okay. Like, the, just new, Rambo. the new Rambo, yeah. New Rambo, yeah. Rambo 08. And before that, in 2006, he did Rocky Balboa, which was essentially the last Rocky before we got Creed and Creed 2. I mean, this is kind of, I think it's going to be a little of a hot take right now, but... Without his two signature roles, he's basically been in random, bad, forgettable movies. I'm trying to and think of anything. Spike Kids 3. And, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of anything else. He's been a Judge Dredd. That, that's not oh, yeah. one of his main franchises. See, that's the thing, though. If, if he was still Judge Dredd in the reboot with um, Carl Urban... I'd give it to you, but Carl Urban is a thousand times better. I, I actually Dredd. did not see the new Judge Dredd. Ooh, you're missing out, dude. Gotta yeah. watch it. Yeah. <laughs> is he from Philly? Are you looking it up? Okay, so he's not from Philly. He's from New York, which I feel like I should have known that. But uh, Close enough, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, Close see, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. A Philly is basically a New Yorker that's more of an asshole. So you just got to be a New that. Yorker with you, you don't. You, hey, I've been to Philadelphia. To I've been to Philadelphia. Oh, okay, all right, all right. So, so you've seen the Atlantic Ocean? Uh, no. Isn't Philly on the coast? 
Mm, no. At least it wasn't when I drove through it. I did, <laughs> well, the only it thing didn't I, move. It well, didn't the only move thing I saw <laughs> was a river, like the Delaware River, I think it was. Oh, okay. So, that was the only right. water that I saw when I was No, there. no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, it's on a river, not... Clearly, anytime there's a body of water next to something, I'm like, ocean, done. <laughs> you should know this. This is your neck of the woods. That's true. Maybe the Delaware River spills into the ocean, and then it's kind of like a extension I'm, of the I'm pretty ocean. sure it does. It does. Okay. So we'll call... Well, let's just call it the Atlantic and be done with it. <laughs> Perfect. But yeah, in any case, uh, Stallone was having a tough time selling the studios the fact that he can helm uh, an action movie, not only because of his older age, but his last movie was Rambo in 2008 and only grossed $42 million. The budget was $50 million, Oof. and it was critically bashed. I remember this coming out, and it was just forgotten immediately. Yeah, I never saw it. I think it was poorly marketed, too. Um, I, I could seldom remember the commercials. The studios ended up all turning down Stallone's idea of the action movie because he just couldn't garner the interest. And clearly with the performance of Rambo, I mean, he he fucked up an action movie, which I feel like it should be a pretty... I mean, if John Wick can be about a movie, a guy going to revenge after his dog getting killed, and you can't do Rambo, which is yeah. like John a badass guy in the jungle. John Wick doesn't say that much in the movie, so it's... <laughs> It's almost impossible to fuck up a Guns Ablazing action movie. And he did. Yeah, he did. So the studios basically were only accepting this as a direct-to-video film. Oh, God. Stallone ended up calling his buddies Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis and basically asked them to help out and revive his dying career, to which they obliged. Is that what he said on the phone? He's like, hey, I have a dying career. Can you help me? I hope that's what he said. <laughs> And a Schwarzenegger, I think, at this time, was, wasn't he still the governor? Yes. So he's just like, ah, I have all these policies, but my boy Stallone's, uh, he's, he's having a tough time, so I'm going to go help him out. Yeah. But Stallone ended up asking via Twitter, as everyone normally does, and said, quote, how would you like to see me, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis in a movie together? It really bothered me he didn't use the and, and Bruce Willis. Because it just is oh, Arnold just Schwarzenegger, comma, Bruce comma. Willis oh. in a movie together. Yeah, that's a little off-putting. It is seeing that. But w- when was this? Because Twitter hasn't uh, been around. Is this like the infancy of Twitter? No, this was in twenty, like twenty ten or eleven. Twenty, I think two thousand nine or maybe it is two thousand ten. Good job. Wow. So yeah, I, he must have he must have done it in two thousand nine. The campaign met everyone go nuts. And the studio basically had no option but to release the movie theatrically. That's funny. That's like the opposite of what happened a couple weeks ago when we talked about people throwing out the ideas for sequels and stuff like that and franchises. I think Russell, Russell Crowe wanted this This Yeah, he wanted this happen. reaction. He's like, hey, anybody interested in a Master Commander 2? And nobody responds. And Sylvester Stallone. I was going to say <laughs> I was gonna say Master and Commander 2 with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis. Imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis in a... 18th or 19th century period piece uh, naval movie. <laughs> it's hard to picture them in anything that's not like Die Hard or Terminator. Yeah, they have to be working class guys and just shooting people up. Yeah. Or robots. <laughs> robots, yeah. <laughs> no in between. The, no. The irony of, of, of The Expendables is that, you know, despite it not going to VHS, 
it has one of the largest straight to VHS like cast of heroes. <laughs> because I mean, that is true. Dolph Lundgren, uh, Dolph Lundgren's in it. Uh, Ramp Randy Savage, isn't it? Right? Ramp? No. Rampage Jackson. Randy. <laughs> Randy Couture. Randy Couture. Randy Couture. No, Randy Savage is Macho Man's account. Yeah. <laughs> he should have been in that movie. That would have been fucking awesome. It's funny. Me and me and Kathy were talking last night. We were going to watch 310 to Yuma, and I kept calling Russell Crowe Kurt Russell. And she's like, that's the most closest you can be with still it being a legitimate person's name. That's true. And I feel like that's how, how it just went for... Uh, Rampage Jackson? Or no, Randy Savage. Randy Savage. Randy <laughs> Savage. I feel like Randy Savage, Rampage Jackson, that's a name. Yeah. Like, that's a whole name. And we're both wrong. It's Randy Couture. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's like the first and last thing he was in. I think Rampage Jackson was an A-team. That's what it was. Yes. And we spoke about that last week? Yeah, franchises. Okay. All right. Wow, this got way off topic. <laughs> um, but yeah, back to Expendables. But yeah, the irony, the whole thing... It's all straight to VHS heroes. And the funny thing about this movie is that I'm pretty sure in Expendables 1, Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger are in one scene. And then the I rest think they is. Are. I think that was the. I, I remember hearing about him being in the movie, Schwarzenegger. And he said that he didn't want to do any acting while he was a governor. And he basically did this as a favor to Stallone. I didn't realize that it was because his career was in shambles. It just yeah. kind of seemed like, hey, it's my buddy. I'll, I'll be in a scene. Yeah, because I think they all meet up in a church. And that's the only yeah. scene with them together. Is in Expendables 1. Now, Expendables 2 and 3 is a different story. Because in 3, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis are very prominently featured in it. Yeah. And, and honestly, I'm not going to lie. But Expendables 3, I'm a fan. I don't know if I've seen Expendables 3. If you haven't, you should. It's it's a good time. I've it's definitely time. seen 1 and 2. I may even have Expendables 3 on Blu-ray. Isn't 3 with Jean-Claude Van Damme? He's the bad guy. I thought is that if it is, then I've seen it. Yeah, Expendables 3 is with Mel Gibson. That's my mistake. It's actually Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis are prominently featured in 2 and 3 cuz 3's with Mel Gibson. Not a fan of 3. Well, I haven't seen 3. Big fan of two because Jean Claude Van Damme was fucking awesome in that, which is kind of it's that you're going on a limb to say that was that good. Also, it was had Chuck Norris in it. I mean, I don't know. It just kind of it kind of <laughs> had everyone everyone great in that movie was. Yeah, I'm a big fan of one and two. Uh, I'm not a fan of one. I think I, one. I is, like one. Which is the one with Angel Batista from Dexter? Is that two or one? That's the first. That's the first one. And okay. I just have to say. The latter two Expendables films, they feel more like a theatrical release. Expendables 1 feels like a straight-to-video movie. It kind of does. Which is why I'm surprised it garnered enough interest to release two sequels. Because, And to your point, Angel Batista from Dexter is this South American <laughs> dictator. And he's fucking awful. He's bad. Like, he's, crin he's, he's cringeworthy in everything, honestly. I, I don't even really like him in... I think he's really good in Dexter. I don't. In Expendables, just, I thought he was god awful. But you know what I'm saying? I feel like the studio was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Arnold and Bruce. It feels weird just saying Bruce. Bruce Willis. It, it doesn't feel weird saying Arnold. Arnold and Bruce Willis. We're good with them being in it, but we're still going to give it like 
the straight to VHS feel. And then I guess at the last minute they're like, okay, this is decent enough. Let's just throw it on the, on the film reel rather than the VHS, <laughs> even though it's 2010. I know we use the term straight to VHS as like, it couldn't be any worse than straight to VHS. So even when I'm talking about like a 2009 movie, I'm still talking like straight to VHS. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying though? Like it, it has, Oh, that- it definitely has that feel, especially with, Angel Batista as the villain because you could have got he, such a better. He's villain. so bad, and the accent, like I get that he's Hispanic, Hispanic, but he's not he like doesn't pull off the accent at all. No, he doesn't, because he's American. I'm pretty sure he's American or from Puerto Rico, but like those people don't necessarily have like Spanish accent. I mean, if he's an actor like in America, yeah, he is not going to have an accent. So he's like trying to pull off like a. A Hispanic person who doesn't really know how to speak English accent and yeah. just like, bro, no, yeah. no, stop. <laughs> for for whatever reason, it's bad. I think it's because he's Puerto Rican trying to do a Mexican accent and he's just doing his like regular Puerto Rican accent thinking that's what it is, but I, it just doesn't feel right to me. So you think it's like a, uh, what's it called? A Chris Hemsworth situation where yes, he can't do American or British accents. <laughs> yeah I to the un- to the to the untrained ear he can but i think it's more like keanu reeves and dracula that's bad though that's like really bad <laughs> <laughs> well you know just i guess after talking about angel batista's character in expendables I, that's not even his name but that's i don't even know his that. real name <laughs> angel but, Batista um, to me. just I'm, I'm i'm wondering if maybe because he was such a horrible villain that it made Jean-Claude Van Damme better? Or maybe Jean-Claude Van Damme was pretty awesome in two. Oh, man, that's a good point. He could be awful, but um, maybe I should go back and, and watch Expendables Rewatch. 2. Yeah. And just, you know, because Expendables 1 is completely out of my mind. I don't remember yeah. shit except for the horrible acting and the feel of it. <laughs> yeah. So my first movie that was supposed to go direct to, I'm just going to say VHS, even though this yeah, is Yeah, let's just stick with VHS. <laughs> Supposed to go direct to VHS was Slumdog Millionaire. That's so surprising. It's crazy to think that a movie that won like eight Oscars was supposed to go direct to VHS. In August of 2007, Warner Brothers Independent Pictures acquired the rights to distribute the movie. And a few months before uh, they started filming, uh, Time Warner announced that they would merge with New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers. Basically, after a few months, Warner Independent Pictures was completely shut down. And this basically left the fate of the movie in kind of in limbo because everything under uh, Warner Independent Pictures went back to Warner Brothers and they had an insane slate of movies that everybody was working on. And So this was like under like their indie label? Yeah, it was, you know, like in the mid 90s early 2000s all these major studios were making indie studios for whatever reason like people yeah, like wouldn't some... understand that <laughs> what, what's universal the per- pictures or <laughs> yeah, something could yeah like people wouldn't understand that uh like searchlight or something was like a fox company or like or like touchstone was a yeah Disney company. like people just i don't know maybe they, they needed to come up with like indie shell companies so like they'll never suspect that they're giving to a big major studio i know i don't understand the like fools. A, <laughs> if a movie is good i don't really care like what production studio made it yeah it's funny a little side tangent i follow this meme account on instagram and for some reason they posted a 
you know how like the logo of like WB is like it looks in the gold and then it zooms out. Yeah. And it's like a studio. It looks like a studio in a gold reflection. Yeah. The caption was, you know, you know, it's going to be a good movie when you see this. I'm like, huh? I don't like, know about I, that. I don't know about like Warner Brothers. Maybe if it's like a fucking Marvel logo, sure. Maybe if it's a Harry Potter movie. That's the only one I can think of that's like. But Harry Potter doesn't do that. It just does the zoom in to the logo like in class. That's true. Yeah, it doesn't do And that. you get hyped because of the music, not the fucking Warner. Like, oh, fuck, Warner Brothers is doing it again. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the music and the Harry Potter logo at the beginning is like what gets me hyped, not the Warner Brothers logo. Yeah. Let's not, let's not get into Harry Potter because, right <laughs> you know, I've been marathoning it right now. Uh, okay. So the studio is back to Slumdog Millionaire. The, the studio has serious doubts about the commercial prospects of Slumdog Millionaire. So they bumped it off the November 2008 schedule and it technically had no uh, set release date after that. They were actually, yeah, they were considering making it direct to VHS and it's actually hilarious because the chief of Warner Brothers, Alan Horn, said in 2008, August of 2008, that um, they were shopping the movie trying to get rid of the rights to it and oh completely so not even sending it to straight to D, uh vhs yeah they basically didn't want to deal with uh the marketing or anything like that like, right even producing well, vhs's for it right well i had uh, no i i well because i was going to say that it doesn't make sense for something this small for the studio to just say all right we're going to go straight to vhs on this yeah, because no one's gonna buy Slumdog Millionaire on in at the video store without knowing the accolades behind it. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like even when it was sort of an Oscar contender movie, the synopsis wasn't something that was making you fly yeah. over to the theater. You know? You couldn't sell re- it just off of the synopsis. No, you couldn't. So Alan Horn, the uh, Warner Brothers chief at the time he said we're not going to give it away if we can't find a buyer we'll put it out in a few markets perhaps chicago new york toronto and see if it works i'm a big believer in letting the audience decide what it thinks i like the movie i just don't know how big the audience is for it so he was already shitting on the movie before like if you're trying to shop a movie why are you going to shit on the movie before like why would you do that you're trying to make some money on the movie uh, a few weeks after that statement, they actually ended up selling 50% of the stake in Slumdog Millionaire to Fox Searchlight, which is another faux independent <laughs> movie production. At least they're straightforward and say they're Fox Searchlight. Yeah, that's true. That's true. At least it's got Fox in the name. So Fox took on the movie and handled the marketing and distribution and set up a theatrical release for November 2009. So this is basically a year after it's supposed to come out. So uh, Fox is doing the distribution as opposed to Warner Brothers. Yeah, so Warner Brothers basically paid for the production of the movie and Fox handled basically everything after it. Okay. This is kind of like Master and Commander with like 50 fucking production companies involved with getting this movie out. Yeah, yeah. After months of uncertainty, uh, Slumdog Millionaire finally made its premiere at the Telluride Film Festival and had amazing reviews from critics that saw it. And 
the screenings at the Telluride Film Festival, all of them were completely full. People would clap at the end of the movie. They would clap along with the dance number at the end. <laughs> and they they the filmmakers knew that they had a hit on their hands, but they didn't realize that it was going to be like such a large thing. So the studio was yeah. still reluctant to give it a wide release. It wasn't until the Toronto Independent Film Festival that uh, the movie aired and won the People's Choice Award. And at that time, it was kind of... It was like a this... Big deal. It, it was the start of um, this trend where a movie that won People's Choice Award at the Toronto Independent Film Festival went on to at least be nominated for Best Picture for like since 2009. So, and, and it's happened every year. So almost 10 years it's happened. And Slumdog Millionaire was the start of that. Every, oh, every time the People's Choice Award, that's who goes into the Oscars? Yeah. Yeah, It's it just happens to be nominated for Best Picture. Isn't People's Choice Award like fucking like Best Female Superhero? Like that's a... No, this is the People's Choice and Award. And there's like two people up... <laughs> No. Yeah. Oh, the oh, oh you're thinking like of the, the People's MT. Choice Awards. No, this is the People's Choice Award at the Toronto okay. singular, not plural. Yes, yeah. It's okay. like what, okay, it's what the festival goers vote on at the end of the festival. As, yeah, is their their like, favorite movie? I was like, was this category after hunkiest villain <laughs> or best kiss or something? Best kiss, <laughs> best on screen chemistry or something like that. Yeah. Now you're kind of getting into like the Woodies. Like or, you're, that's you're, like the MTV Movie Award ground right there. Or oh, like, I was thinking of the AVN Awards. If you're going best kiss <laughs> and best on-screen chemistry, I'm like, oh, we're treading onto some different territory. That's now. true. That is true. So Fox decided to release the movie in waves. Uh, so basically in November, uh, they had some very limited theaters show the movie. December and January, same thing. And then on the 23rd, it was released wide. The next weekend, it was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Shit. So, yeah, Fox hit like a gold mine from, you know, buying this from Warner Brothers. So, so wait, so Fox is the one that. Well, it's, it's basically 50-50 owned. So Warner Brothers is reaping the rewards of Fox's chant, like chance taking on the movie. But who gets the Oscar at the studio? Because I've been to Columbia Pictures and they have the Oscars in the studio in the you know studio tour. I'm pretty sure it's who, so who's showing those off. I'm pretty who sure it's it. No, it's it's usually the production company that produces it. So in other words, Fox kind of got fucked. I think they did, yeah. Because I'm pretty sure not financially though. No, definitely not financially. And that looks good on your resume if you're looking for a job as a. <laughs> studio director that's true if you're i made us a shit ton of money yeah so slumdog millionaire was made for about 15 million dollars and went on to gross worldwide about 377 million dollars what yeah i had no idea it made that much yeah so holy shit yeah went on to win eight oscars including best picture best director best adapted screenplay and the rest is pretty much history Wow. I wonder how much people got paid to do that movie because it was filmed entirely in India, was it not? Yeah, it's actually one of the first movies to be nominated or to win an Oscar for Best Picture with at least a third or more of the movie being not in English. 
Right. Right. And the entire cast is not white. Yeah. Not that that has any bearing. I'm just... I feel they, like that's a major achievement yeah. for Oscars. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, the Oscars, uh, Oscars are quite uh, bleached in their <laughs> process of <laughs> nominating and winning. Yeah. So, wow, that's impressive. I mean, 15 million, the, return, the, the returns on that is fantastic. So not only do you get an Oscar, but you made a, a super cheap movie and got a really big return. Yeah, that's kind of shitty because Warner Brothers put up the fifteen million to to make the movie, and they get half of Fox's work marketing the movie. Hey, if you market a good movie, you know it's gonna do well. Even if you market a shit movie, it's gonna do well. Yeah, and they basically what what happened was that after it won the uh, the Critics Choice Award or the uh, People's Choice Award at the Toronto film festival they started to market it as an oscar movie so they were doing the the shit that we hate marketing (laughs) it as an oscar movie i will say out of all the oscar movies not all but it definitely doesn't scream like oh i'm an oscar movie it feels more like oh this is how like bollywood movies are kind of because i mean they do have like the dance number at the end and just kind of exposing us to that i love the movie i think it's great it's yeah, it's probably one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years or so. Let's talk about a movie that we've never spoken about or watched. Oh god. <laughs> and that's Annihilation. Oh fuck. Which is like it's it's a weird one because although it did get released in theaters in the US, it's still in a way also went straight to video on demand. That's the Natalie Portman one, right? That's correct. Yes. So Annihilation. Paramount wanted to get another hit like how it did for Arrival in 2016. Paramount produced, distributed, did all that stuff for Arrival. The Amy Adams alien movie where she's like speaking or talking to them. Whatever I hated it is. that. I fucking hated that movie. Oh, really? I haven't seen that one either. I couldn't stand it. It got really good reviews, but I could not stand it. I fell asleep. And I never got really good reviews. Movies. And I think it also is another one of those movies that just made a shit ton of money for an Oscar movie. Yeah. It it doesn't have the payout that it should have at the end of like two hours and 45 minutes of bullshit. (laughs) Well, Paramount thought they were going after um, a similar movie deal uh, with aliens. So they thought that would be a gold mine. (laughs) And uh, they, they ended up hiring director Alex Garland and he is, he wrote and directed Ex Machina. Okay. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. It's like the Android girl. Um but yeah, he also wrote it, he also wrote and directed Annihilation and although it seemed to be a match made in heaven, Paramount quickly got cold feet with it. If you've seen Ex Machina, you know it's not exactly a movie for mainstream audiences. And despite its success critically, it only made 25 million dollars domestically. I saw the movie in theaters. I personally really enjoyed it. But I feel like it's one of those movies, and I don't know if you're like this, but if a movie's going to be kind of long and I really need to pay attention, I have to see it in theaters. Because I'm, if you're home on the way. couch, you're going to be fucking looking at your phone, you're going to be missing stuff, you're going to be like, eh, it was fine, you know? Yep. In the theater, I was like, fuck yeah. I saw it at home with Marissa. I was just like, eh. Uh, yeah, I uh, have that same it's problem. 
I have a. It's focus weird because it's not a theater experience thing. It's not like, oh, you need to see these conversations in, you know, a thirty forty foot screen. You know, yeah. but I feel I feel like concentration wise, it helps me out because I'm not a dickhead that texts it in the theater. But you don't get subtitles in theaters. No, but see, I can I can. It's just because it's dark. Like all my senses are engaged to listening and sight. Okay. So I feel like it heightens. Whereas at home, I got, you know, the lights on and stuff. Marissa doesn't, because she'll fall asleep, supposedly. <laughs> okay. For Annihilation, the movie itself wasn't in any danger of not being released in theaters in the U.S., but it was in danger of not being released in theaters internationally. So much so that the studio did not have faith in the film to bring enough revenue overseas and they ended up selling the rights to Netflix for an international distribution. Wow. <laughs> it's it's funny because I love how Netflix is just like, yeah, we'll buy it. We don't care. <laughs> it's really like, like that South Park episode. It really is. They they picked up the phone. They're like, Netflix, you're greenlit. They're like, actually, we're, we just want to offload the, the risk of however much this money, this movie uh, took to make. So the international... Market is yours. The whole reason Paramount ended up selling the rights was because of our favorite thing here at Wicked Hot, stupid test audiences. Test audiences, damn it. <laughs> Which we realized time and again, they basically screw up everything. They're usually wrong. Yeah, except I think they may be right in this. Okay. So test audiences are what pushed Paramount to sell the rights because according to what Paramount said, audiences thought the film was too intellectual. What? I know you've seen the I know you've seen the film. Do do you agree with this? I think they meant it was more just difficult to understand those goddamn intellectuals trying to make us feel dumb. <laughs> I understand where they're coming from cuz I recently watched on Netflix The Ballad of Buster Scruggs and I hated every second of that movie. Oh, and that sucks. I've been wanting to watch it. That's what I thought when I watched it. I was like, do I just not understand this? Is this like above my head? Is this too smart? Did you watch for me? it with subtitles? No. Just saying. It's, I could understand what they were saying. It was just a bad movie. A really bad movie. And I just... I, I, I'm wondering, like, what's wrong with me? I, I completely understand what they're, where they're coming from with this. Well, as someone who's watched Annihilation and couldn't finish it, would you say that was the issue? That you just didn't really understand I just what they thought were it talking was, about? Yeah, kind of. I just thought it was bad. Like, a bad movie. And I don't like... Once I notice a movie's bad... I will turn it off. Like, I don't give a fuck. I, I, my time is too precious to me to waste it on a terrible movie. So as soon as I'm like not into it, it's off. Okay. Which is what happened with black Klansman. I tried to like the movie, but what? I hated it. No, I, I liked it. I, I couldn't stand it. I got halfway through it and turned it off. Oh, I saw it in the theater. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> You turn it off. You went up there. You're like, fuck you, projectionist. I'm the projectionist now. And I turned the projector off. <laughs> but yeah, par- par- <laughs> back to Annihilation. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Luckily, the studio did sell off the rights to Netflix on the international market because they were able to recoup some of the money to cover the budget of $40 million for Annihilation. I feel like that's like very, very high. I, I don't think so. That doesn't seem like a very high budget at all. Considering movies nowadays are like hundreds of millions of dollars in budget. Yeah, but for that kind of movie, I'm thinking half that. Maybe maybe it was Natalie Portman. Yeah, Natalie Portman's salary alone is half that. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, she was in Star Wars. Let's be real. <laughs> um, <laughs> the movie flopped big time in the box office at $32 million. Ooh. So the studio, I think, may have recouped their investment. And for once, test audiences were kind of right. because, And the studio was right in following the test audience. And just they knew that they couldn't handle whatever it was. Clearly, you couldn't handle it. And I think you're one that can sit through Oscar-y kind of movies. Yeah. But it's interesting because when you look at it now, studios are very risk-averse. They've become less about the art, more about the business, which I can respect. But it, they know if people, normal people, aren't going to get this, we just got to, you know, just shut it down. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's what happened to the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, because that was a direct-to-Netflix movie. And just See, like Annihilation. It was released in theaters, too. I think, I think they also had a couple limited was theatrical it? releases. I think it has the same problem that it's just not it's not a movie that appeals to mass audiences. And that's what you need for a wide release movie. Yeah, agreed. So my next one is Saw. Saw was supposed to go direct to VHS, but Lionsgate I could see that. I yeah. See. <laughs> Lionsgate <laughs> picked up the worldwide distribution rights at the Sundance Film Festival uh the a couple days before it premiered at the festival in January so of two thousand four. <laughs> Wait a minute. Saw was at Sundance? Yeah. Apparently it did very I that well. Was like, I thought that was like for ritzy movies and then Aquaman, like in Entourage. <laughs> <laughs> Which is ironic because this is a James Wan movie, is it not? It is, yeah. Saw? Yeah. And James Wan is directing Aquaman. That is true. A little tie-in there. Yeah, a little Entourage tie-in. Although I don't know if, if again... Uh, DC superhero movie is the best place for uh, anybody be be premiered at a at Sundance Film Festival. Yeah, it'd probably get booed because people at Sundance they don't fuck around. Like if they they're like me in theaters. Like if they don't like it, they'll fucking walk out and boo you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they will. I could already see. They, you know what they should do is for Aquaman they they should put like a palm door from Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> and you're like, oh shit. And it's just like, it's fucking Aquaman. Yeah. So back to Saw. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at Sundance, it played to a packed theater for three nights straight and received a very positive reception. Wow. The film actually ended up closing out the Toronto International Film Festival on September 18th of 2004. So Lionsgate initially planned to release the movie direct to uh, VHS due to uh, <laughs> the positive reactions at Sundance. They chose to release it theatrically in, like during Halloween. So they sat on the movie okay. for like almost an entire year before releasing That's it. That's so risky. <laughs> I guess they weren't confident enough. They're like, well, fuck it. We'll just throw it in with the rest of the scary movies. Yeah. So when they bought it at Sundance, they so they bought it before it had ever been shown. And they bought it with the intention of it going direct to video. And after the three nights that it played at Sundance and the reception was amazing for it, they were like, yeah, we may have something here. And right. that's when they decided to release it in October of 2004. The film was originally rated NC-17, which I'm not surprised by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So it uh, is one of those. It's like the Terrifier, right? Didn't you say that straight to Netflix? Yeah. Oh yeah, Terrifier yeah. would have been NC seventeen, hundred percent. I'll have to watch it. I still haven't watched it. It's not. I wouldn't say it's a good movie, but it's like a good slasher. How's the villain? Creep fest. He's good, but you never, you don't really ever get closure on what's going on with him. Okay. So that's kind of a bummer. But Saw was initially rated NC-17 and part of Lionsgate uh, buying it was that it had to be re-edited to be released with an R rating. Did they say what they edited out? No, but I really want to see a director's cut of, of the movie. Which I think they have. So, I think they released it for the 10-year anniversary. They released a uncut version. So was it because of the rating that they were going to keep it at a VHS Yeah, it was level? initially, it was the rating and the fact that they didn't think it could hold audiences, especially in January when, when they were initially going to release it. Right. So they held on to it until October, released it. Uh, at least an edited version of it. During that time, as like a, pr- a cross-promotion for whatever reason, they did a Give Till It Hurts blood drive with the Red Cross. And they say part of that, the marketing for that, like the cross-promotion, was something that blew Saw up into, obviously, what it is today, like a huge franchise. Really? So it opened in 2004 on Halloween. And the number three spot and the <laughs> number one that year was Ray and the Grudge. Very odd. <laughs> <laughs> Very odd three movies right there. I love how Ray was released in October. Yeah, Halloween movie. They're like, yes, this is the best Halloween movie about Ray Charles. <laughs> so Saw- by, isn't that the guy who did Superstitious? But that's MC. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I thought that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, no, that makes sense. <laughs> Saw eventually became Lionsgate's second best opening after Fahrenheit 9-11. I can't imagine that having a better opening than any movie, honestly. <laughs> so what, Saw or Fahrenheit 9-11? Fahrenheit 9-11. Isn't that the documentary about the World Trade Center? Yeah, that's the Michael Moore documentary. Really? And that's their number one opening thing? At this point in 2004, like now it's like Lionsgate is doing big things. They're not. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, damn, that's, that's pretty pathetic, honestly. Yeah. But I think they're doing like legit blockbusters now. So it's Do not. you know what, what Lionsgate was doing at the time before that? Because I feel like for a documentary and then Saw, which, I mean, let's be real. Now we can't, we don't think of it as something that's like an indie horror movie. But at the time it totally was. Oh, Yeah. Especially with the budget compared to, oh, it's so cheaply made. What I mean, it made, yeah, I, I think it was made for like less than twenty million or something. All I know is black ping pong balls. Yes, corner <laughs> that black ping pong ball market. <laughs> that was their biggest expense. <laughs> their most, their most frivolous expense on the production budget. Okay, so I can tell you that their highest grossing film now is Hunger Games: Catching Fire. Hunger Games, okay. and okay. then Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, and then Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 2. I didn't know that they did both. Of well, that makes sense. That yeah. If one, the other would follow. But Yeah, now uh, Saw isn't even on this list for top Lionsgate grosses. The irony of that is no one's talking about Hunger Games, or even Twilight for that matter, anymore. That's true. It's pretty crazy that 
you know, half the movies on their list. Well, La La Land is on there. That's pretty much it. Divergent is on there. Oof. Like none of their movies have like they really up. monopolized the teen. Yeah, they teeny did. bopper uh, series. It's weird because Lionsgate does like teen movies and horror movies. That's pretty much like they all do they do. do. Horror movies. Yeah, they do a lot of horror movies. Didn't they do three hundred? Uh, it was distributed by Warner Brothers, but it's a oh legendary. Yeah, legendary pictures. Legendary pictures. They should come up with a shell company of like totally not Warner Brothers or totally not <laughs> Fox or Yeah. I don't who who in their right mind looks at a movie and they're like, who the fuck made this? And they're like, oh no, Warner Brothers, no. Like Well, I mean, I will say, like, for instance, if you do like the Universal logo, good logo, good like accompanying music, like or- orchestral music. Yeah. And then at the end of it, it says a Comcast company. That is true. So if Comcast was like, you know, Comcast, people would be like, fuck off, Comcast. We're not watching this shit. That is very true. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So That's true. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. So the world worldwide, back to Saw, by the way. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, the world I just have to end it with the uh the box office was okay. uh 103 million worldwide for a movie that was supposed to go direct to VHS. I have to say the direct to VHS it seems like people were a little afraid and then there's just like fuck you millions of dollars. Yeah. It's like um especially with Slumdog Millionaire it's like oh we don't know how it's going to do and we're just going to release it direct to DVD and not you know, not marketed at all. And then it's like, oh, you know what? Let's just give it a millions of dollars worth of marketing. And then all of a sudden it wins eight Oscars and becomes like a $377 million profit. Yeah. I guarantee you that would have been a $37,000 profit if they didn't market it and did it straight to DVD. Don't even make it then. Yeah. Because at that point, 2009, that's like Blockbuster is already going downhill at that point. Oh, yeah. Because that's like when Netflix started. Yeah, the the mail service. So there's no the way service, yeah. there's no way that Slumdog Millionaire saw or anything that was supposed to go direct to VHS was gonna do anything. Yeah, in terms of selling and, and meeting numbers. Oh yeah. All right. Well, that concludes our almost went to straight to VHS talk. Now let's get into a little bit of our cult movies slash on demand movies. My first one is Boondock Stinks. The story of the film is about as crazy as a Tarantino movie, which is ironic considering how much of a copy rather than an homage Boondock Saints is to Tarantino. Really? I think it's just such a copy. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, like it's like now, a yeah, cross no. between It's like Pulp Fiction like, and like Jackie Brown and Yeah. Reservoir Dogs all rolled into one. Yes. Huh. Well, that's a bummer. Think about it Thank you for yeah, writing that movie for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the whole story, it starts off with Troy Duffy's, which is the director, script in a bidding war and eventually being picked up by Miramax. Originally had a budget of $15 million and a bunch of top-notch 90s actors like Keanu Reeves, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, Ethan Hawke, Ooh. Jeff Goldblum, Jesus. and Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> but in... 1997, 
this all crumbled when Miramax pulled out because in essence, our director, Troy Duffy was a huge dick. And he's like quoted as name. Troy Duffy. It does. Yeah. He's quoted as saying, quote, I'm not worried about making enemies with Miramax. In fact, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what did he do before this? Like, did he, did he nothing? Do anything this was his this? first, this was his first script. Oh, but like my the God. script, the script garnered so much attention that every production company was out to get it. And eventually Miramax is the one that landed with it. Oh God. He's one Until of those guys dro- that gets hired on and thinks he should be a manager right away. Yeah. He's one of those guys. Yeah. He's one of those guys. But uh, yeah, so Miramax pulls out. Movie gets picked up by a production company called Franchise Pictures. And instead of having a $15 million budget, they now have a $6 million budget. Even though it was picked up, it was impossible to find a distributor for the film. Once it, once it was done, like nobody really wanted to distribute. And I'm wondering if he who must not be named Harvey Weinstein had anything to do with basically burying this movie after Troy Duffy was a total dick to him and his production company. I wouldn't put it past him. I was going to say, I'm thinking 100% yes, and that's probably why. Because for the most part, it seems that a lot of the film, and it, it said it in a couple articles I read, they were afraid about the whole Miramax deal. Yeah, and like I'm almost involved. thinking like Harvey Weinstein's just telling these distribution companies if if you distribute this movie that I had to drop out of, you're not getting any of my stuff anymore. Which seems kind of like a bad business decision because it's like saying, "Oh, I'm not going to sell you this stuff, but guess what? My only way to make money is if I sell you this stuff." Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's like that, a but guy that's who, a, a farmer Weinstein who's not selling thing. his cow. It is. It is. It is. And maybe Troy Duffy didn't want to jerk off in front of him maybe that's what <laughs> that was a that was a louis ck thing not a <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> i think if you get involved with harvey weinstein you're asking for trouble and i'm not just saying that because like the sexual stuff but he's like he's known for being a scumbag like ruin your fucking career type thing you're like a movie mogul that still has yeah. like the i feel like mo- like movie guys back in like the 1920s and 30s were like that and he's like the old school yeah. studio guy who's like involved with fucking everything yep. and he'll destroy you. Yeah. And they actually, they have a pretty good representation of him in entourage and they don't ever call him Harvey Weinstein. They just call him Harvey, but it's implied that it's Harvey Weinstein. And from what I understand, like it's a very accurate representation of Harvey Weinstein. Wow. Well, um, yeah. So this, the whole Miramax thing just kind of screwed everything up for distribution for Boondock Saints and the Boondock Saints did go to theaters. It had a limited release in cinemas. And by that, I mean five theaters showed the movie for a week. Wow. Yeah. I don't really want to count this as a film that went to theaters because the movie made $30,000 in theaters. Wow. So it sold, and, it sold like 100 <laughs> tickets. Yes. And I'm pretty sure all those tickets were to critics because critics jumped on this movie for being a shitty version of a Tarantino movie. Oh, God. And I mean, like we said in the beginning, I have to agree, not not because of the Tarantino thing, but because it was panned by critics, the two main characters aren't what's good about the movie for me. And let's be honest, Willem Dafoe is the best part of this movie. Yeah. Because uh, Norman Reedus sucks, in period. I think he's fucking horrible, even in Walking Dead. Even in Walking I Dead? I know every... Yeah, I think everyone loves him. He just sucks. He's awful. 
Yeah, I mean, he's good in Walking Dead, but I like, I just don't think he's a great actor in in anything else I've ever seen him in. Yeah, which I mean, let's be honest, what else have you seen him in? I completely forgot he was in Boondock Saints. Like, to to be to be real with you, yeah, I can't think of anything besides those two. But in any case, how did this movie get to become the big hit that it was, or bigger hit? Not like huge, but you get the idea. Troy Duffy was later able to get funding from Blockbuster and the extinct video store, unfortunately, released the film on video as a Blockbuster exclusive. You remember the Blockbuster exclusives. Those are some good shit. Yeah. Some good Blockbuster exclusives. The film to date has made $25 million in DVD and Blu-ray sales, and it was supposedly re-released in 2006, but I couldn't find any information on how much it made. And like where it was released, I just know that it was re-released in 2006. It could have been like one of those Fathom events things, maybe. Yeah, I found that with mine that there's not a lot of numbers on the re-release after after it becomes a cult classic. Yeah, which is so weird because you would think Box Office Mojo would still count that. I mean, it's in theaters again. Yeah, it really needs to count after something becomes a cult. And I don't know how they figure that out but like the box office or the tracking after that because that's or that's even interesting do, stuff yeah because i mean granted it i think it came out in 2000 boondock saints but have have a have an entry for boondock saints 2000 and then have one for 2006 and then compare the numbers yeah so movies getting a second life on home video isn't anything new but for office space it was a little little different, a little rocky. Uh, so the movie was produced for about $10 million. And it was released in 1999 and barely made back its $10 million. Opening weekend I had of, no idea this wasn't released in theaters. It was. It was released in theaters, but it went to a VH, actual VHS. Very shortly after (laughs) it was released in theaters. So it was released in theaters to like 1700 screens and only made about $4 million in in its opening week. That's embarrassing. And just under 10 million total theaters. It actually didn't do well in DVD sales. And it was like bottom of the shelf blockbuster rental. (laughs) And it's crazy because it didn't. It wasn't until two years after it came out on DVD that Comedy Central started running the movie, and that's where it got its cult status. Get out! So over the next two years, Comedy Central aired the movie over thirty times. After they started airing the movie, VHS and DVD sales jumped to two point five million people. Wow! In those two years. This may be controversial, but do you think it was good because it was free? And then people ended up buying it afterwards? I feel like that may be the case. That may be the case. I saw it on Comedy Central probably 10 times. Yeah, because I had no idea about this movie until I did. And I didn't know. I guess Comedy Central was a big thing for me and for like a lot of my friends in yeah. you know, middle school and high school. So Yeah, and that was right around the time that it would have come out. Come out. So that would have been 2002-ish. Yeah, because it came out on DVD in 1999 and it didn't start airing. Comedy Central to 2002? Oh, yeah. well, that must must have been way before my time then. Yeah, so... I mean, way before, but... 
So in that span of two years, 2.5 million people bought the VHS or DVD. So it's it's funny because the film's success um, in the after theatrical run and the DVD run was actually beneficial to the stapler company, Swingline. So as we talked For about... the red stapler. <laughs> yeah, we talked about last week with product placement and companies allowing productions to use their products. Swingline actually declined to have their product in the movie. And I didn't know you could do this, but Mike Judge said, fuck it. And he said, we're going to have a Swingline stapler in there anyways. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you get sued for that, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apparently. Uh, so the production team needed a bright color, so they decided to make the swing line red. And that's the only reason there's a red stapler. So at the time, swing line didn't even sell a red stapler. And after the movie, they had so many orders for red staplers that they had to release a red stapler. Wow. And they even said later on that it was a mistake not to be involved with making the movie. Was it, though? I mean, they still got the revenue from it. Yeah, they still got the revenue, but I feel like they could have done some cross-promotion or like at least had a red stapler ready to be released when the movie... I guess or it, they could I have a cut out, the cutout in, in the office, in a office depots or office maxes yeah. with the guy. Here, here are all the red staplers to buy. Like an actual... like. You know, like yeah. a planogram for including yeah, that. Exactly. They could have done some actual marketing with it. But it's crazy that a cult movie, like four years after it comes out, finally has its success on VHS and DVD and then affects a market that it wasn't really even attending to. <laughs> yeah, stapler buyers. <laughs> stapler. <laughs> and it's funny because the reason that swing the executives at Swinglon said that they didn't want to be in the movie was that they said customers would not trade up for a, a new version of a stapler just because of a movie, which was completely wrong because people did. Boy, were they wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little twofer. Product placement and... It is. Cold now, uh, imagine if James Bond had that stapler. <laughs> <laughs> and a Heineken. Stapler made by Burberry. <laughs> So, Kevin, I think this is a rare time where you actually don't know one of my topics because I picked it so... Or, I'm sorry, one of my movies because I picked it so late. And I actually completely forgot about this one considering it was a massively marketed movie that had all the promise of being released in theaters and then suddenly it wasn't. And that oh is... God, what is this? The Interview. Oh, my God. I, I completely <laughs> forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm specifically to, specifically talking about 2014's The Interview starring Seth Rogen and James Franco. For any of you that don't remember this movie, it was a comedy that dealt with a talk show host being sent to North Korea to assassinate Kim Jong-un. It's Which actually is, a I really funny movie. It is a really funny movie. It's stupid as you would think, but it is a pretty good movie. Oh, no, I 100% enjoyed this movie a lot. <laughs> And it was a pretty tumultuous post-production as the original release date of the film was October 10th and it was pushed back on August of the same year. In June, Kim Jong-un had stated that the release of this film would be an act of war, which, I mean, let's be honest, it's on the lines of basically everything that comes out of that country. Yeah. They say this every week. 
So I can understand why Columbia Pictures would not be concerned by this at all. Fast forward to November, though, and Sony Pictures, which is the parent company of Columbia, the film's distribution company, was hacked by a cyber terrorist organization. The hackers ended up leaking emails, employee records, and I think they also released some unreleased films to the public, but the interview wasn't one of them. Uh, Despite the hack... Was this in retaliation to them still trying to release the movie? Yes, so they had suspected that, but it wasn't confirmed until December when they had sent a message about it. But yeah, despite the fact that the hack was definitely connected to the creation and eventual release of the interview, Sony continued with the intention to release the film. They held the premiere in LA on December 11th. Then the hackers responded again on December 16th, saying that if Sony released the film, that multiple attacks would be staged in theaters across the United States. They mentioned 9-11 and that people would remember the day that they released this movie, blah, blah, blah. That response scared Sony. It prompted them to cancel the release of the film in its entirety and not release it to the public at all. That's a bummer. Either either theaters or via digital downloads. All of this would have been for naught. And I think it also is related because Sony canceled the screenings altogether because of the response of theater chains. So it's like saying like, oh, I break up with you. And you respond with, well, actually, no, I I break up with you. (laughs) But yeah, AMC, Cinemark, Regal, and Cineplex dropped their distribution with Sony for the film. A lot of them cited that it was because of that shooting in the theater that happened. Yeah. I think a couple of years prior. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who dressed up as the Joker or whatever, except not really. He'd look nothing like the Joker. Yeah. New news. Green hair. News people were saying that he was dressed up as the Joker, which is not true. Not accurate at all. No. But uh, yeah, Sony received a lot of criticism actually from the white house for their decision in canceling the release of the interview. Which white house? Obama white house. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of our thing to not negotiate with terrorists. So, yeah, they, I mean, in a I sense, gotta, nego- they negotiated but got nothing out of it. I got to say, like, it's a it's a bitch move not to release the movie because then you let them you let them win. Like, they weren't going to do anything. They're just threatening you. Yeah. I don't know if it's a hot take, but Sony is ba- like in Japan. So maybe because they're close to North Korea, they're like, oh, shit, they'll come after Sony headquarters. Range. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they are definitely in range. The missiles may not make it to the west coast of Cal- uh, of the United States, but they'll make it to Japan. I mean, they just need like a, a paddle jumper or something. To, to That's true. Or a puddle jumper, not a paddle. Paddle jumper. <laughs> yeah. Puddle jumper. Well, despite all this, I guess Sony kind of balled up because of the White House. And they ended up releasing the film to most streaming services on Christmas Eve, December 24th. And... That also spread through file sharing websites, which is interesting because the next number I'm about to tell you is Sony ended up earning over $40 million from digital sales, which for a comedy, I don't know. I feel like that's a lot. That does seem like a lot. Include, considering the fact that it was heavily pirated movie. Oh, yeah. They also, yeah. yeah. Sony ended up also releasing the film later and the smaller art house theaters that they could obtain, 
which is about 500 theaters, and they made around $5 million in the United States. Damn. Yeah. They also released the film in the UK and Ireland in February of 2015. So I think they overall made, I think, $11 million in theaters, and then $40 million via digital sales. So I think it's it's still kind of worked out for everybody. Definitely a success story. I, do you do you think that the movie would have done that well if it just came out as scheduled in theaters, I, no questions asked? I think it may have. I, it was very heavily marketed. If it made forty million in digital, digital. and then eleven million in theaters, so that's fifty one. So it would have been uh, fifty one. Seems like a lot for a comedy. I was thinking a hundred, honestly. You think it probably would have made around a hundred? Yeah. Because I really wouldn't have gotten to it until later. Because for me, I usually go see the newest stuff pretty pretty soon. Yeah. And if it's already on digital, I'm like, fuck it. I'll wait till it's on Netflix. That's you know? true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> like, I already paid for the movie one time. You know, so I, I not, if I'm going to pay for a movie, it's going to be in the theater rather than watching it at home. If I'm going to watch it at home, maybe I'll get it on Blu-ray. But very rarely do I buy movies anymore. For the most part, I'll just wait till it's on Netflix or if it's on on demand on Comcast. I think I may have. I saw this the day that it came out on Netflix. Yeah, same. No, I saw it the same. Once it was released, I was like, oh shit, YouTube. <laughs> I, I watched it on YouTube. Like the YouTube where you buy the movie. Oh, okay. Or rent, rent the movie. Yeah. yeah. That was actually an underrated movie. It was. I saw it on a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> so my last one is probably the cult movie to end all cult movies, and it's The Big Lebowski. So The Big Lebowski premiered at the 1998 Sundance Film Festival in January of 1998. And Again, another one. Another one had no idea that it was a straight-to-VHS movie. Yeah, it, it did have a theatrical release, but again, it did not do well. Um, It grossed $5 million in its opening weekend and barely made back its $15 million budget with a $17 million in uh, ticket sales. Wow. I mean, this is kind of just synonymous with Coen Brothers movies. Yeah. I, it's funny that we're here at the beginning with Big Lebowski. Not the beginning, beginning. I don't think that was their first movie, but... No. Um, now we're fast-forwarding, like how you were talking about Ballad of Buster... Buster Rhymes, what was it? Buster Rhymes. What was the name? Buster Scruggs. Buster, Buster Scruggs? Buster Rhymes. Buster Scruggs on Netflix. I mean, they went from straight to VHS, and now they're kind of, they did a full circle. Because yeah. I mean, you had No Country for Old Men, you had, uh, what, that's basically the only one I could think of that's not like a stereotypical you know, it's kind Joel of funny. Ethan Cohen movie. I, I, we kind of had a little bit of a Cohen Brothers bender this weekend. We watched Fargo. No, we watched uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and we watched No Country for Old Men, and we also yeah. watched Three Ten to Yuma, which is not a Cohen Brothers movie, but a great movie. I was like, wait, that's a Cohen Brothers movie? God, I fucking love. That I know movie. when we started watching, I'm like, wait, let me make sure this isn't a Cohen Brothers because we had already watched two that day. By the way, um. I watched Hostels with Christian Bale. Oh, is that good? It was kind of boring. Really? Damn. I thought it would be like 310 to you. I was yeah. like, fuck yeah, I'm getting into this. And there were some good scenes, but for the most part, I was eh. Damn. Yeah. That's a bummer because I really like 310 to you. I like Because guess who else is in fucking Hostels for who? a minute? 
fucking uh Russell Crowe. Crow? So- not Russell Crowe. Ben Foster. Oh my god, Ben Foster. <laughs> yeah. He's this guy that he has to transport to get hung, and he's a really bad guy. Oh man. So Kathy was like, when Ben Foster first comes on screen at 310 to you, but she's like, Who's that guy? I'm like, that's Ben fucking Foster. I don't know who that is. <laughs> what is it still awesome? It's I was I, I loved every second of it. It's such a good movie. It is. I don't know if she liked it. She it, that was her first time seeing it. Hang me in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> that guy's great in it too. I forget what his name is. I hate that guy in everything. Just like oh, as he's a, a, He's an asshole an in everything. No, I think oh, he's no, good. I like, think he's a good asshole. I think he's a good asshole. He's in Walking Tall, I think, with The Rock. Yes, he is. He's an he asshole is. in that. He's really good, and I fucking hate him. He is in Wolverine Origins. That I know. <laughs> All right. Back to... So, back to Big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned the Coen Brothers' previous movies and, and forthcoming movies, that the reason that it did as well as it did, and and you can make an argument that it didn't do well at all, was that people were expecting a great follow-up to Fargo, the previous Coen Brothers movie. So, in some, They're so different. Yeah, they're completely different movies, and it's like, if you're going in expecting Fargo and you get Big Lebowski, like, it's... You're going to have like a bad a Coen's, time. It's like a Coen version of Pulp Fiction. Yeah. That's like the Coen's version of Pulp Fiction for me. It really is. And I so I read some articles about people that had seen the movie to like d- during release right. was that people were leaving the theater confused and they, <laughs> they were disappointed in the movie and they were, so one of them even said that they were disappointed in the fact that the movie seems to like glorify being a slacker and uh, yeah, it had really bad reviews from people that were seeing the movie at that time. Wow. So it wasn't until 2002 that an LA Times writer wrote about the film's emerging cult status. And he realized that the film had a cult following when he attended a midnight screening at the uh, New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles, where he saw people quoting the movie and they eventually had to turn people away because there was too many, too many people there to see the movie. Uh, that's that. I feel like that's synonymous for midnight showings, though. Yeah, you only get the really hardcore fans. Yeah, yeah. He was like, "Oh, let me go." <laughs> that's like going to like a fucking comic con convention. Wow, people really love comics. Like, no, <laughs> like, that is true. Like, yeah, you're, you're going probably where gonna people get... going to quote the movie at a midnight premiere or yeah. midnight viewing. Yeah. So soon after the article came out, uh, a programmer for a local midnight film series in Santa Cruz decided to screen the Big Lebowski on the first weekend that they started doing this midnight series. And he, he said that several hundred people showed up, like over over 500 people showed up for this. Wow. And they also had to turn people away. So for the next six weeks, they showed the movie and it was sold out every every week. Damn. And this started the annual Lebowski Fest, which I didn't know was a thing. But apparently it is. In Louisville, uh, Kentucky, there is a fest festival for Lebowski fans. And it in started in Kentucky. In Kentucky, yeah. Well, it's in other states now, but it, it originated in Kentucky. Interesting. I wonder why. It started in two thousand two with about hundred and fifty fans and expanded to several cities. And the main event each year is a night 
of unlimited bowling. It's a good way to celebrate the big Lebowski. Yeah. Unlimited bowling trivia. Like Lebowski trivia. Le- yes. Lebowski trivia. Okay. And it's usually held over a weekend and it's like thousands of people show up nowadays. So like, it's insane. I feel like the big Lebowski is a semi biographical movie about Jeff Bridges. I want to believe that. I want to believe that Jeff Bridges is that awesome. Have you heard him speak though? He's very much a crazy person. (laughs) I I mean, he does seem a little crazy. I think so. He's a little off. He's a little off. If anything, this is how his life would have been if he wasn't like an actor and, and was successful. I could see that. I could definitely you know, see that. Like I'm not that's mad the, at it the, either. No, I'm not mad at it. Yeah, it's the alternate life of Jeff Bridges. So another thing I did not know was that, like all great cult followings, like Star Wars has their own religion now. The Big Lebowski has its own religion. <laughs> what do you mean by religion? Uh, it's a religion called Dudeism. Oh, yes, I've heard of this. It spreads the philosophy of the main character of the film. And was founded in 2005. Also known wow. as the Church of Latter-day Dude. Oh, that's great. They Church have, of Latter-day Dude. They Do you have, just dress in a bathrobe and drink milk? I guess so. Yeah, smoke weed, dress in bathrobe, carry a rug around with you. Yeah. It has 220,000 ordained Dudist priests. That's what they call them, Dudist that's priests. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, that's an alarming amount of people. It really is. (laughs) And there's not just 220,000 that believe in this. Those are ordained Dudist ministers. Yeah. Yeah. Although I wonder how how quickly you can be an ordained Dudist. It's probably like a a fee and a a quiz. A fee, a quiz, and they need to know how much weed you can smoke on a daily basis <laughs> yeah, and still function as a priest. I, I just picture them sending you like a Buzzfeed, uh, like what Lebowski character are you? And like, if you get Lebowski, you're, you're in, <laughs> you're a dude priest. That's fantastic. All right, cool. Well, I would say this was a very productive week, but before we close things off, Kevin, I want to ask you one last question. Okay. And, and a little twist of our topic, which famous straight-to-video actor could you see in a theatrically released Oscar movie? Oh, God. Okay. Jean-Claude Van Damme, Dolph Lundgren, can include Creed, or Steven Seagal. Oh, my God. Did I tell you I love this question? <laughs> <laughs> well, Steven Seagal is automatically out. There's no way the guy can make a coherent movie. Especially now. Oh, man. I'm going to say Dolph Lundgren because he's like the most competent person on the list. That's true. Like as as far as an in, 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 in intelligence wise. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Steven Seagal is like. I, I don't think I, I wouldn't trust him to form a complete sentence, let alone lead an Oscar movie. I agree. Steven Seagal, the most I can see him in a theatrically released movie is like one of the henchmen of the villain Dorian from The Mask, you know, like one of those like (laughs) really 90s guys. In fact, I always thought one of the henchmen was Steven Seagal because he had like the shave side head with like the little top of hair. 
Do you know the guy? He's like one of the, yeah. the thug guys. Yep. That I thought was Steven Seagal for the longest time. I feel like that guy could have been Steven Seagal. That's funny you say that because I've always thought that Michael Shannon looked like a henchman from The Mask. <laughs> and it's funny that you say that, that you think the same thing about, like, I don't know. It's just funny. I wonder if all henchmen from The Mask have gone on to fantastic careers. <laughs> I doubt it's probably that, we but. don't even realize it's like Brad Pitt, George Clooney. <laughs> it's like how they all got their start. Um, okay, I, I respect Dolph Lundgren. I'm going to go with Jean-Claude Van Damme because I could totally see him in like a 18th century like French period piece movie. Imagine. <laughs> That's true. He's he already has- got the super French accent, even though I think he's like from Belgium. Yeah, but- I think he is. Don't they speak... They speak French there. Yeah, they speak like yeah. half of Belgian speaks French, right? I th- I think all of them speak French. Oh, really? Or German, maybe. Yeah, I thought like half of it was German, half of it was French. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Awesome. Well, thanks again, everyone, for sticking with us to the end of the episode. As always, if you want to get more Wicked Hot movie mayhem in your life, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wicked Hot Talk. And Facebook. <laughs> I always forget Facebook. You always forget Facebook. Redhead yeah. stepchild. And in case you want to check us out on any other podcast feeds, go ahead because we can be found everywhere where podcasts can be found. Thanks again, guys. This is John. And Kevin. I feel like we haven't said it ever, but we're also on Spotify. I don't know if anyone ever knew that. We are on Spotify. This is true. All right, guys. Well, we'll catch you next week. No, two weeks. In two weeks. In two weeks for our final Wicked Hot Movie Mayhem episode. Bye, everybody.